Esther chapter 4, and we're going to start uh, in Esther in just a minute once we get to our Bible text, and then work our way through a couple of texts. And I, I want to say about this message today, and the two that uh, you can go back and listen to if you've missed them, given by Greg and by Todd, that it is a delicate balance for a ministry team to preach to the church about one gender, right? Because there's the, there's the fear that we will isolate half of the congregation for a few weeks and make you feel like this message isn't for you. So ladies, why is this message for you today? Well, many of you are married to God's biggest project still under construction, right? And so this message is going to give you some insight into what God is trying to do in the heart of your mate. And you might pray specifically, maybe more specifically than you ever knew what to pray before, having heard about these four pillars that we've been discussing. And again, these are the two pillars we covered and the two pillars that we're covering today. Uh, a king, this is one role of a man, not to be a, 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 you know, a dictator or over-authoritarian, but, but the visionary leadership that God put in the heart of a man. A king is meant to provide for those that he cares for. And so God put in the heart of men uh, a visionary trait that we need to embrace to provide for those that we love. And then Todd talked about last week a warrior, uh, but not to be brutal, but to protect. And also uh, not to abdicate that, not to disappear in a time of need, but to be present in a time of need, to protect the home, protect the family, protect the loved ones against uh, anything that would come against the family, both physical and, and maybe especially spiritual, all of the challenges of Satan against the family and against your home. And if you're a man of God, you're called to protect uh, with your, whatever spiritual power God gave you, those, those beloved people in your life. And so if you're not uh, married to one of these men, uh, maybe one of them is your son or your grandson, and your prayer is that they will grow up uh, to know the Lord in the way where they are, uh, they are visionarily providing for the family and they are protecting the family and they're doing the other two things that we're going to talk about this morning. Women, this, this is for you too because you have someone in your life that you're praying will live out this godly embodiment. Amen, ladies? Amen. And amen, men? Amen. Now, uh, a few months ago when the ministry team was preparing this series, we decided to use a book by Stu Weber. Uh, it's a little bit of an older book, but it's still very good, and it's called Four Pillars of a Man's Heart. I know that it's really bothered some of you that our graphic has five pillars in it, and I take full responsibility for that. I'm sorry for that. One of the pillars is falling over, and I didn't even think about that. I was just going for pillars, you know, symbolic. Yeah, so we've got pillars there, but there's four pillars. And then the first thing that the ministry team noticed is, well, we've got four pillars, but three weeks. So, uh, you know, right away, Greg was like, I'm happy to do king. That sounds great. And Todd jumped in and go, I'll, I'll do warrior. And they both look at me, which means you get to do two pillars, and they are mentor and friend. And they both kind of smiled. You know, like, we're doing king and warrior. You get to do mentor and friend. They both give me this funny out of the side of their face grin. And then Todd goes like this. He says, that's good because, Josh, you're the tender warrior. <laughs> and I'm like... Thanks a lot, right? Like, thanks a lot for that. So how are you supposed to teach about being a mentor and a friend 
in a culture that tends to do two equally bad things about the male identity. The one really bad thing is that sometimes it gets overhyped and overcharged and super testosterone driven and the, and the male personality gets taught in our world or it's thought of as somebody who has to be the strongest and the most brutal and the most arrogant and the one who just always gets his way and he's very forward with everything and he just makes people do what he wants and that's one of the ways that the world breaks the idea of what a man should be. And the other way that the world breaks the idea of what a man should be, according to God's plan, is by acting as if there is no such thing as a man. Acting as if all that there is is just people, and that men are not supposed to protect their family and lead, and be the ones in the family who lead in these two pillars that we're looking at today. Because if a man in the home, the family, or the church is not willing to be courageous enough to be the one who says, I will offer some wisdom or some mentoring advice in this situation. If the man in the family or the relationship or the home isn't willing to be the one who loves the biggest, who loves the deepest, and you probably won't ever be able to outlove those wives, and you'll never be able to outlove those grandmas, but you try to love the biggest and, and the greatest, then the family and the church and the home don't stand a chance. Because God's plan isn't for the men or the women to just give up all of the traits over to the other one and say, you know, your sex is good at that, so you take all of that one. No. God's plan for the home and the church and the world is that men would be brave enough to offer wisdom when it's necessary and to offer love at all times. Amen, church? Amen. And so, uh, what is a hero? And what does it look like for a man to be heroic in these two pillars. First, let's consider a definition. This is my second favorite definition of all time of what a hero is. All of you have some images in your mind of a hero. So here we go from the great philosopher. Do you know who the real heroes are? The, guy, uh, the guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime. Those are the real heroes. Amen, church. Amen. This is, this is from the great philosopher Dwight K. Schrute. He has some great advice about real heroic action. And then this is my favorite definition of all time from the same person. Okay, so here you go. Number one definition. A hero is part human and part supernatural. A hero is born out of a childhood trauma or out of a disaster that must be avenged. Thank you, Dwight K. Schrute, right? This is the way that we often think of heroes, isn't it? This is the caricature of what a hero is. Uh, boys grew up probably watching Saturday morning cartoons, much like I did. And in my day, these were the cartoons that were on. You had Batman and Robin. You had Superman. And then you had like the Fantastic Four and then Ninja Turtles, which was my personal favorite of all time. And what did all of these people have in common in the Saturday morning cartoon moments is that they do something valiant. You know, they have great courage and great power and they, they save somebody's life or they defeat some kind of crook or something like that. And we've got to get our head wrapped around the fact that this is maybe the only way that we're ever used to hearing the word or thinking about hero. And that's not what it, what it means to be a hero to the people in your life that depend on you the most. Whoever is, is that person in your life, your spouse, Men, I'm talking about that wife that you love, 
those kids that you love and you see off to school every morning, those grandchildren that you want to see them grow up in the Lord and know the Lord, to be a hero to them, you will probably, hopefully, never have to defend their life against a physical attack. Now, be prepared if you do, but that's probably not the way you're going to be a hero. You're probably never going to have to go into a situation like some kind of secret agent and uncover this you know, international plot. They're fun to watch, but that's not the way that we act like a hero in and out of everyday life. And yet the Bible, in this one verse in Proverbs, taps into this idea, this idea that to be in the relationship with somebody in a heroic way means you're ready for adversity. This is the proverb. A friend loves at all times, but look at it, a brother is born for adversity. And so how is the adversity going to come? How will it show itself? It's going to be in a moment. Whenever your friend or your child or your grandchild does not know which decision to make in life and you have a little bit more wisdom or experience or you made that mistake, you broke that thing and you can say in one word, you know, consider this outcome. Or you can give with one smile or one glance, take courage, you can do this. Or you simply sit with your arm around your wife and you say, I will never leave you no matter how hard it gets. Amen, church. Let's look at one example of mentoring in Scripture from the story of Esther. And if you're in that book, I want you to open up to chapter 4 and get ready for the particular verse we're going to look at in just a moment. But I want you to consider the story of Esther and Mordecai with me for just a moment. It may be that you have never heard this story before, or that it's been some time since you considered it. So, uh, what is going on in the story of Esther? Well, her people, the nation that she's a part of, the Jewish people, they're off in a foreign country. They got defeated in war, and they got taken into exile, so they're in a foreign country, and some of them have been promoted within that country to positions of leadership. So some of them are doing very well for themselves, but they're still foreigners. They're in a difficult spot, and there is a man named Mordecai who has a cousin, it's his uncle's daughter, but the uncle and the aunt pass away, and so she's an orphan, and he takes her in his home. He's older than she is, and he becomes like a father figure to her, and he raises this girl. Her, her Jewish name is Hadassah, but her name in this foreign country is Esther. And you know what's really cool? We just had a baby born in this church named uh, Hattie, or Hadassah, uh, just last week. Isn't that really cool? So that story is living on uh, still in that name. And so this, this little girl and this man, her cousin, who raised her, uh, they live in this foreign country, and he's very high up in the government. And at one point in time, there is another man who's also in the government, also in a high position of authority, and his name is Haman. And Haman gets promoted to second in command. The whole country. Haman is really a big shot. And it says this one really interesting thing in Esther chapter 3. It says about Haman, and we've probably just skipped over it a thousand times, it says that he was a great, 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 great grandson descendant of a king named Agag, of this one king. And who is Agag? Well, way back in the history of the Jews, long before they had, had been beaten in this military war and, and gone into exile, there was a king in their own country named Saul. And Saul was defeating these enemy armies that were encroaching on Israel. And he was doing that because God had told him to defend the people. So he's acting out one of the pillars of, of manliness, right, of being a king. 
He's doing one of the roles that he's supposed to do as a man in charge of this country, protect the people, lead with visionary leadership, and he defeats the foreign armies. Except, God says, if you want to really be rid of all of the trouble that they're causing, they're evil men, uh, they do terrible things, they, they have ch child sacrifices, they do all kinds of terrible stuff, you need to put that foreign king to death. He deserves the death penalty for what he's done. And Saul doesn't do it, and so instead... The other man who's uh, in, in charge in the country, who's a prophet named Samuel, has to put this foreign king to death because Saul won't do it. Saul abdicates his responsibility. It's a really sad story in the history of Israel. And this king, Agag, uh, gets put to death by the prophet. And so, so much further down in history, years and years later down in history, you get through the exile, and here's Mordecai, and here's Esther, and they're living generations later. And it says this man, Haman, was a great descendant of Agag, that king, that evil king. And guess who Mordecai and Esther are descended from? The Jewish people uh, of whom Samuel was this great champion. And so there's a conflict going on. And in the book of Esther, it's almost like the ancient conflict is being reignited in their modern day because you've got this evil person who wants to see the end of the Jews, who's a descendant of Agag, and you've got this good Mordecai and Esther, his cousin, and they just want to see the peace and prosperity of the people, and they're trying to serve in the government too. And Haman gets it in his mind that he's going to destroy Mordecai, and he's going to destroy all his people by getting a law made that all the Jews are to be exterminated, genocide. And so this is the conflict that we find ourselves in, in the book. And here's a picture. This is from a, you know, a Hollywood remake of it all. But I want you to see the picture, and I want you to look closely at the faces there. This represents Mordecai and Esther. And I don't know what you might imagine the relationship of a mentor is like. What does it look like when a mentor gives advice? You may think of somebody who considers themselves a mentor, but they really just come across as bossy. Uh, in, in fact, look at Mordecai's finger. Can you all see the finger? If you can, make that same finger with your hand and point it. See, see that? See that? That doesn't necessarily seem like the kind of mentoring you want, right? Like you see this finger pointing and you think, uh-oh, he's pointing at her. He's being critical. Nobody likes a critical person. But I want you to see that this finger, this mentoring uh, moment when he gives her advice is being given in love because look at her face. It's really hard to see. She's in the shadow but she has this small smile. She has this small smile that says, uh, he's not being you know, too provoking here, he's not being too critical here, but she's receiving it in love. She's receiving it as, this is my cousin, this man who has raised me, who loves me and wants the best for me, and she understands that what she's getting from him in this moment, it comes from love. It comes from him caring for her. And here's the verse that, uh, that I think that picture represents very well. It's a moment when Esther, who's been raised to the position of queen, I mean, it's awesome. Like, she gets to, she meets the king. There's a whole, there's a, I mean, there's just all kinds of corruption going on, and there's a terrible divorce that happens, but the king finds her and thinks she's beautiful. She becomes the new queen. She gets put in this position of power and authority, and so she's got an ear with the king, but it's very dangerous to tell the king what to do. The last queen told the king no, and guess what? He just got rid of her. He just sent her away. And so it's very dangerous to tell the king what to do. And, and Mordecai comes to Esther and he says this. To save their people against this threat, this great, 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 great grandson of Agag. He says, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. Okay, don't think 
that your momentary position of favoritism, of being the queen and having you know, all of the trappings of the royalty will protect you when they find out that you're a Jew. Because Haman, this ancient, you know, this grandson of this ancient evil that opposed our people, they've been opposing us all the way down, he will make sure to get you killed. Something's going to happen. They're going to assassinate you. Something will happen. Don't think that you're safe. If you keep quiet at a time like this, when all your people need you, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. Now, that is not maybe what you'd expect the mentor to say. Because what we might expect him to say is, you need to do something because no one else will, no one else can. There's no hope. You're the last hope. Sometimes we think of heroes as being the, you know, the last hope. But he says, actually, I've got great faith in God. And God's going to protect his people no matter what because he's made promises to us and he's going to be faithful. God will bring help from somewhere, but you and your relatives will die. And then he gives her the greatest advice. This is resounded throughout the history of faithful believers passed down from great grandparents to you know grandchildren and and from moms and dads to children who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this and this is the great moment when Mordecai gets to speak as a mentor into Esther's life and guess what He isn't even the hero of the story in the normal way of thinking about it. She's the heroine. I mean, she's the one that, you know, bravely goes in before the king and pleads for the country, uh, for all of her people and for their lives. And the king responds kindly and he protects all of her people. And in the end, they're saved. And she's the one who has to go in and bear the burden. But Mordecai, in this moment, isn't called to solve that problem. He's not called to go to war at this moment. He's not called to be the one who addresses the king and protects the people at this moment. He's called to be the one who can see that God's already prepared the right woman for the job, and my role is to be the mentoring voice that launches her into the successful plan that God has for her. Mordecai can see that this is Esther's moment, and he's prepared to give advice that launches her into God's plan for her life. He's willing to stay in the role that God called him to, and yet he fully embraces his role as a man of God by being the voice of counsel that helps her and helps all of the people in their time of need. Here's a couple of takeaways from the story of Esther and Mordecai. First is this. A mentor teaches life. A mentor is going to come to an Esther and say, this is the thing you need to know about life. You will not escape alive if you do the wrong thing. But if you do the right thing, you might save yourself and all of the people. A mentor may say to the young person in the family, look, I have put my money into this kind of a venture before. And let me tell you, you need to have a plan. You need to have a model. You need to have a a workable thing that you can take to the loan officer that will really prove to them that it'll work. You gotta have employees that you can trust. Uh, A mentor might come to to the person that's in the relationship and say, look, I can see the way that they talk to you. And we really need to talk about that. We need to talk, how do you feel when they talk to you that way? Is this what you feel like is God's call for your life? A mentor may be the person who in the critical time of need, when the other person's life and death is hanging in the balance and their life of blessing or of curse is hanging in the balance, is able to shed some light on the situation and some life into the situation and say, this is how God made the world to work. Secondly, a mentor will offer wisdom. 
A mentor won't control all the decisions. Mordecai can't make Esther do anything. A mentor doesn't mean you force him into it. It means a mentor offers wisdom. And it must be available in a person-to-person relationship. You can't program this. You can program some kinds of mentoring, but if you want to talk about being there in the critical moment of a loved one's life, you can't program that. You've got to be in their life. You've got to be paying attention to their life. And when it's requested, when they're ready to hear it, you're ready to speak a word of wisdom. And that means that you can't be a fool or a know-it-all. A mentor can't be somebody who spouts off at every opportunity and, and thinks that they know the answer to everything. They can speak with confidence, but they can't pretend that they know the answer to everything in life or no one will be able to trust the wisdom at the moment in which God calls them to act. And a mentor has to be a person in their own life who listens to godly advice who listens to the advice of Scripture, and who's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because there's no one else who can mentor you, a man of God, in the way that you need to grow, in the way that you need to live, than looking to Jesus in the Scriptures, looking to the Father in the way the Father leads men in Scriptures, so that you're constantly being coached and saturated and trained to live like a godly man based on Scripture. Amen, church. Amen. Let's turn to the idea of friend for just a moment. I love that these two pillars are closely related. You know, the first two pillars are kind of a pair also. Sometimes a king will go to war. uh, And sometimes a mentor uh, will have an opportunity to speak into the life of a loved one, but not if you aren't a true friend. Not if you aren't really a loved one of that person. What opens the door to being able to speak wisdom through the mentoring relationship or through that pillar is having a true, dedicated relationship, one in which you say to them, I'll never give up on you. And so let's look at an example from Scripture with Hannah and Elkanah. Uh, This story comes from 1 Samuel. And if you want to look it up and read a little bit more about it, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So you can turn there right now. And I'm going to read a few verses to you, and there's there's a key verse that we're going to pull out of this story. But again, this may be a story that you haven't heard in a while, or maybe that you've never heard before. And so let me give you a little recap of what's going on. This is long before Mordecai and Esther, hundreds of years before. And so this is back around the same time frame that those other heroes like Samuel and Saul and that evil villain Agag were alive. This is in that lifetime. And this is right before Saul comes to power and becomes the king. In fact, Samuel, who's the prophet, is going to be born uh, in the story in chapter 1 that I'm pointing you towards today. And so this is a whole different generation earlier in history. And there's a man and a woman who open the story of 1 Samuel. This story of how Israel got their king and how they defeated Agag and all of those other guys. And so there's a man, and it opens up the story like this. It says, there was a certain man uh, from the hill country, and his name was Elkanah. And he was from Ephraim, that was their tribe. And he had two wives. And right away, everybody in the church, when they hear two wives, says, "Uh uh-oh, right? Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, okay, you're going, this guy is going to be the, the, the mentor, right? This guy is, is the loving friend, right? Are there problems at home? Do you have to know any more of the story to know that there's problems at home? Say no. No. Okay, good. Because you know that if there's two wives and one man in the house, there's going to be some kind of jealousy. There's going to be, he's not going to be able to, to please both, to appease both. Uh, they're going to want different things. The heart of a woman and the heart of a man were meant one-to-one, 
And so even though God was tolerating this in their history, he wasn't just wiping them out. He was letting this go on. This doesn't set you up for a good situation. And you can see it right away in the story because uh, in verse 3 it says this, this man, Elkanah, used to go up every year, year to year, to worship and sacrifice at Shiloh. uh, And there was priests there. And so he'd go and he'd sacrifice at this place where there was priests. And listen to this. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife. So here's the first woman in the story, Penina, and all of her children. Okay, so the one wife has all of these kids, sons and daughters. And he would give all of them portions to sacrifice, and then they'd also probably get to partake in that feast and eat all of that. But listen to this. But to Hannah, this is the other wife, he gave a double portion because he loved her, even though the Lord had not opened her womb. Ah, so now we can see the tension in the story. Hannah hasn't been able to have any children, and Penina has lots of kids. And the story goes on to say that the way it works out in their home, Penina is constantly picking on Hannah and making fun of her and making her life just wretched because she's got kids and the other woman doesn't. And Hannah is heartbroken and distressed like any woman who wants to have children might be. And Elkanah feels for her deeply because as you just heard from the story, he loves her. He loves Hannah. He loves her so much that even though she doesn't have kids, he gives her a double portion of the sacrifice and the feast because he cares for her. And look at what happens in their conversation. We get insight into their private conversation in 1 Samuel 1 and verse 8. Look at this verse with me. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And all of the women right now are going, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's out of touch, right? Like, what do you mean, why do you weep? I already told you, like, we don't have kids. This is stressful. The other woman is making fun of me all the time. When we go up to the temple, you have to give me a double portion because you pity me, right? Like, because you feel bad for me. And so what do you mean, why do I weep? But Elkanah, uh, as is maybe typical of many of, of those of my sex, of the men, he tries as best as he can. Now look at his words. They don't, they're not going to come across real great to you ladies, but let's think about them, let them sink in, and, and let's explain them. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Women, go ahead, react. <laughs> oh, right? Like, no, he didn't say that, right? Like, no way. Am I more to you than ten? But guess what? There, there's moments in all of your marriages where I guarantee this is exactly what's going on in the heart of your husband. There's moments when this is exactly what's going on in the heart of a man. Why? Because he loves you. And he may be a dum-dum sometimes, but he really wants to know, like, can I be enough for you? Can I be sufficient? Because I love you, and I want to provide. I want to have, I want to provide. I want to protect. I want to give you wisdom, and I want to give you love. I care for you so much, and I wish that I were enough. And even though men cannot always be enough, because men and women both need God to fulfill their lives, and there's some pains in life, like, like, the, like not having children, like being in the place where you're infertile, that it simply isn't always enough just that you love each other in marriage. It is so hard. And for those of you who have experienced it or who are experiencing it now, we feel for you and with you because we know that it's one of those questions like how could this ever be met and answered unless God comes through? But Elkanah, women hear this. He's trying. He doesn't know the right words to say. But if he were the guy 
who said, you know what, I'm just not going to say anything, then they would lose contact. And if he was the guy who, maybe he's a little bit this guy, who has to try to fix it and be enough, well, that's a mistake too, but he's trying. He's not abdicating. He's not leaving her alone. He stays with her in the situation. And in fact, he does stay with her. Because as the story goes, Hannah eventually is given a child by God. And when it's time to go and take that child to the temple, guess who's right by her side? Elkanah. And when she says, I want to send him, let him be part of the ministry and be part of the priesthood and send him away from our home, even though he's only like three years old, guess who supports it and is right by her side? Elkanah. Because he loves her. And he doesn't always know what to say, but he's going to try to help. We have a uh, this is an amazing thing. Somebody was able to take a picture back into history of the moment when Elkanah opens his mouth and says, am I not Morty? And look at there's Panina in the background eating a turkey leg or a chicken leg that's like promised land size, right? Like it's, that's massive. But can you imagine, and I know this is a, a, a Lego picture and this is silly, but look at how she's turned away from him. Can you imagine that moment when he says this to her and his heart is bleeding, he wants to help, and it doesn't land, it doesn't work, but he doesn't give up. He stays by her side. And even though he's not enough for everything, their God will be. Elkanah sees that his beloved wife is in distress, and he tries as best as he can to connect with her. This is all he can do. He can do these things. Be with you, offer love, and not be alone, and not smother, right? So he kind of does for a moment there, but then he gets it right. But he's not going to be a loner, he's not going to leave her alone, and he's not going to smother her. He's going to be with her. And just to wrap this up this morning, I want to show you a couple of pictures because we're getting to the moment where you've got to make a, a decision about whether any of this is something that you need in your life and that God's going to help answer. Do you men need to grow in these things? And if so, we'll talk about some resources. Are you women praying for this in the lives of your husband? And this picture right here uh, is from our mission trip in Mexico. And why I love it so much and what they're building right there, the people in the picture are building cabinets for the church in Mexico. And here's a picture of the team that built the cabinets when it was over. And that's our own Jim Ecker right there on the left. And I, I think Todd knew this was coming because last week he said something about Jim being like a warrior, right? Well, guess what? That's true. I would never want to fight you. But also, Jim, in this moment, showed me the mentoring pillar of a man's heart because he had a couple of these ladies that wanted something meaningful to work on. And he was able to slowly teach and coach and guide. And even though he knows how to do it and he wouldn't need all of that help and he could do it uh, on his own, maybe faster on his own, he shows this heart of a mentor by saying, come on in, let me show you how, let me be part of it. And you're gonna be better off after this than you were before. And he's blessed by the relationship. And then here's John Dias. He sits right over here, right? And John, wave at everybody right there. John is one of my favorite mentors. And I just want to tell you one story, real short, of how he did that. When I was preaching one of my first series, a year and a half ago or something like that, maybe two years ago, I had a habit, a terrible habit. I would get up here, and I was nervous, and the first thing that I would always say was a self-deprecating remark. I would get up, and I would be like, well, I'm not the regular guy, and well, I don't really know how to do this, but, and those kind of things. And one day, before I got up to preach, John, just in the office, this is how long it took for him to mentor me, he said, hey, when you go up there today, just be confident. Don't apologize. Just go up there and tell them what God has to say. That changed my whole perspective about preaching. I mean, it literally changed the direction of my life because I stopped getting up here and being like, you know, I don't know how to do this, and I'm not sure if God has something to say to us this morning. I hope he does. And instead, saying this book 
has all kinds of life and godliness in it. Let's tear into it a little bit and find some of it. And even if it's done in brokenness like Elkanah, where it's done from, you know, over the shoulder like Mordecai, we can learn how to live the way God called us through this book. Amen, church? And so John has given me that gift of being a voice of mentorship. And for those of you who want some further resources, our Home Point team has prepared a whole section in the Home Point Center full of tools for men. Uh, you can see in these pictures, there's a bunch of different little things to work through there. I won't even pretend to explain them all, but you can go right in those doors and you can check them out. Some of those are on the tables here all around you in the back of the room. And there's in the bulletin, there's another resource. You can text uh, several different numbers and get blogs this week that will give you more insight about these pillars of manliness. There's great stuff available for you. So read that in the bulletin and go visit the Home Point Center. But not least, our shepherds who love you want to engage in prayer and mentoring and love with you. And so if you're lacking in this in your life, if you need to find that ultimate mentor, Jesus Christ, if you need some stability or some balance to come back into your life, would you share it with our elders? Because they want to meet with you. And one will be uh, up front on each side and a couple will be in the back as we stand and sing this song of invitation.